OSL is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to RabChat, a multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. My name is Norman George Hansen and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone! So we're at UKIO conference in Liverpool and we've got another fantastic guest for you. Do you want to introduce yourself please? Hi, um, I'm Dr Carolyn Costigan and I'm a research radiographer and postdoctoral fellow in the University of Hoskins and the University of So, a really long, intelligent sounding title, what is it that you do? So I'm an MRI radiographer by background. Um, I finished my PhD a week before lockdown, which is pretty <laughs> tight timing. And um, I never knew what I wanted to do after my PhD. I was still working as a research radiographer, did the PhD part-time. And as I was finishing up, this job opportunity came up in the Trust as a clinical academic lead. So what the clinical academic leads do in the Trust is they look after the research and academic careers of working clinical staff. We've leads for AHPs, for nursing and midwifery, for healthcare science and for medicine. We call research futures as a group. So I saw this job and I thought, I don't want to only do this. So I said when I was offered the job, do you have another good candidate that would like to job share this job with me? And so a vascular scientist, Richard, jumped at the opportunity because he got to keep his clinical role as well. So I do two days a week as a clinical academic lead. I do some clinical work as an MRI radiographer, my interest is fecal MRI, and I do research for the rest of the time. And I'm here today one of our research projects looking at incidental findings in the research project. So what are those findings? <laughs> so, interestingly, incidental finding is something, so if you volunteer for an MRI study as a healthy volunteer, say we want to look at 100 brains and measure some functional thing in it, you know, come in and finger tap or look at these images. What happens if we happen to notice you have a meningioma on your scan or something like that? Do you understand when you come for your, your research uh, scan that no radiologist or radiologist ever going to look at that scan some psychologist is going to be scanning or a physicist maybe they're not trained to detect anything you sign a form saying I do understand this will not be reviewed by a radiologist but secretly I can really tell I did a lot of research scanning volunteers assume that there's nothing in the scan so but so you're a young person you're a young person if you come along for a scan and find a BGM you're going to write if you want your house you will get life insurance you will get good illness cover you may not get to travel Changes your whole life if you find something. So it's not just a positive thing to find something on the scan. Or also, you may have a scan, something on it, and it sees it, and then three years later you're diagnosed with something. You go, but 
had a brain scan three years ago, was it on this? So, what do we do about this? Yeah. And, and what do people do? So, there was an RCR working party 11 years ago, I think, um, gathering all the experts in the country. So, I was a radio for representative on that, saying, What are we going to do about research and project management? Can we come to consensus? And published a paper. Um, we managed the incidental findings for Nottingham University in, in our hospital because they do their and so what they do is that they do the scans if they see an abnormality they pick, they send it to us and it's a formal report and then one of our radiologists or the GP contacts the patient and talks them through it. But this varies widely. Some places like Marsden report every single research scan gets reported and that is gold standard. But that's expensive. Some centres don't have a plan. You know, ethics requires you to have a plan. You know, varies from place to place. So it might just be a local university ethics, not necessarily ranks. So many places have different policies, and we get approached now by smaller places like maybe a sports imaging centre to buy an MRI. They go to people's knees. That's what people to do ahead on it. They go, would you manage your incident finding service for us? So when we saw the research booth being advertised for um, UKIO, we thought, why don't we come here and start our survey and ask people what they do with incident finding management? What do they think should happen? Because the, the second half of our survey is like, what would be best practice in your head? What's most important to you? And then we're going to try and come up with a consensus and some guidelines for best practice. And then I want to talk to the health and volunteers in different places and ask them what their understanding is of the process and see what they think. Because obviously it matters to them more than it matters to us. So that's our plan. Is there anything you're worried about from the research? I mean, I don't want to find out that there's some place scanning in kind of, you know, southern England that just do loads of scans on, say, pregnant people, which we do MRI scans on pregnant people, and there's no plan for if they find a fetal abnormality. That's just ethically really troubling to me. And, you know, this probably happens somewhere. So. And also, I'm hoping that somebody will come and say, this is what we do, and I go, this is amazing good practice, and let's try and get everybody doing the same. But is it your responsibility if you find something unethical? So no research study is running without ethical approval. So some university or some national ethics committee has approved this. So what I might consider an ethical patient point of view, they're obviously have ethical approval. So I, I can say my opinion. But I think that if there were some decent national guidelines about how we manage it, that that's less likely to happen, which is why we're doing this. With the patients that you see regularly, um, what are some of the things that you think they might highlight within this research? So you mean the health and volunteers? Yeah. Scans? Um, we're lucky that we live in a country that can adjust for healthcare, which is pretty good. Um, I know I've worked in America and I know American researchers and they have people coming to help tourists because you might have a diagnosis of great for health insurance, but if you volunteer for a research scan, you know, and they find something on the scan, but they're obligated to look after you after that. You know, so there is a lot of people kind of fishing because they have a little bit, oh, I'm a bit twinge on the back and I'm volunteered for a back scan. Yeah. And that's troubling because that's not how you should get your diagnosis. Or you get false reassurance because you might come in and have a, I think you have a brain scan and have some bunch of imaging and you think, well, if there's anything on my brain, they find it. Necessarily, they don't do diagnostic scans, and that's recognised in the papers. A lot of research imaging is physics-based experimental. It's not necessarily trying to find, you know, your MS or whatever. Yeah. So I think people, it's it's 
not good for people to be put to reassured and for people to have the impression that this, if there is that thing with the scans, this will get yeah. done. And you know, what would you think they've imagined? So the chance of finding something incidental, so not related to the research, on a brain scan and not a body scan, what would be your would you say? Body scan's probably going to be higher than brain. Brain abnormalities, I don't know, maybe 10%. Yeah, it's so something between 1 and 15% brain scans and body scans. scans. Well, the literature says up to 30% of body scans oh, really? will have. And it's finding yeah. that might not be life threatening. It might be interesting. Yeah. And the thing about doing research, and I worked as a purely research writer at the university, scan a lot of like doctors, physicists, you know, professional people. People once scanned a doctor with a really life threatening disease that we found. Yeah. That was really traumatic. Well, good for him for the yeah. staff managing it. So what was good for him to find out, it's not an easy part of the start today. And the chances are I've been using body scans really. So. Well, you can go to America and get a six monthly full CT scan as part of insurance. Slightly more. Um, so I'm really interested to hear about your role in Nottingham. Oh, yeah. Um, largely because I think it's amazing practice and I would imagine for the healthcare professionals that work there, knowing that they have that as a resource is really valuable. Yeah. You know, when I um, decided to do a PhD, I'm a DCOR trained, so I didn't have a primary degree. So the leap from DCOR to PhD, that's a journey that only a radiographer forgets, really. So when I was doing my PhD, you get the usual people say, oh, you're great, but mostly say, oh, you're not. What is the point of that? For me, working in academia, you have no academic credibility eventually unless you've got a PhD. So for me, it was a I'm almost like a personal satisfaction, not necessarily a career move. I really wanted to do it, and I still have to wait. But my children were doing the GCSEs and it was my start. We all graduated together in the end of lockdown before graduation in six months. It was amazing. So it was a personal thing, but I didn't know where this was going to go because I had some mentors. We don't have a school for geography in Nottingham, so there was not an academic career in lecture that yeah. was me. Uh, academic radiology had been super supportive and had been really good, but I did a PhD in the BRC that's a gastroenterologist. That's what I did. Celiac so I didn't see a career path, and now that we have clinical academic leads in the trust, people come and talk to us at any stage, newly qualified, pre-masters, post-masters, thinking, and uh, they quite often email me say, I was told to come and talk to you, thinking about doing a PhD. So one of the first people I started mentoring two years ago when I got into the job was a radiotherapy physicist. We had great ideas, but she knew she wanted to try to study, just more baby. What am I gonna do? My manager sort of support her doesn't know what to do with me. I'm like, she's now on just about to start her fully funded, paying her NHS salary, PhD. That's like kind of that was a journey that was lovely. It was four starts, apply for things you don't get them. She did the NIH it's equivalent of the silver, you know, like the pre-doctoral preparation, which is really helpful, but her project, she found out what she was doing, which is not a goer, so to completely change her thinking what she was going to do. But all that iterative process of shaping your proposal, finding funding, looking what's out there, you know, everything from the day before, the night before, at 8 o'clock at night, doing a practice interview with her before her doctoral interview, well, that's part of the job, you know. Yeah. And then now she's saying, well, my manager's not sure, I'm on a three-year secondment, how that works with HR yeah, we're working on physician state of that in the trust at the moment. We've got a dedicated take to our person who's working on how to support managers 
releasing people. They'll have funding for the backfill, but it's not that easy. What happens if it's a two years, you can't do it over the two years of comment, yeah. it's going to three years, what are the expectations of the person coming into this comment, what do you tell them? So us as a film of academic leads who are working hard to do those kind of behind the scenes problems that you don't think about thing about education. There's a lot, and I believe you shouldn't be paying for your own. Some people do self-funding, but just spare money to self-fund or take your own time or take your own money and study leave. Our trust, you know, research is our business, it's what we say, but yeah. we don't have a lot of money. It's just ensuring that our research funds are spent supporting people to get on the right track to get their funding to do it. That's our job. To finish, just... I wanted, well, how important do you think it is for us as radiographers or allied health professionals to advocate for ourselves? So, for example, you introduce yourself as a doctor because you've done a PhD, but lots of people who we speak to, they'd never do that. They think, oh, I'm not a medical doctor, or I'm not a surgeon, so I don't so, shouldn't do it. I don't introduce myself to patients as a doctor because I think that's misleading. Mm -hmm. If people ask me what I do, I say I'm an MRI radiographer. Mm -hmm. If I'm out with my husband, he's a radiologist, he goes, hey, she's got a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the point of me. I'm very proud of it, but yeah, like, yeah. I'm an MRI radiologist. What I do is my passion. Yeah. I do love being a radiographer. I speak yeah. up as a radiographer. And being in sort of senior leadership roles in the trust as a radiographer is so important. You know, I say I want to apply for this job all day a week. It's only ever been held by consultants. Is there any reason I can't do it? No. In your blood, it's in your blood. Friends are radio operators, you know, I, I, I really like this career. Do you think having clinical academics within the NHS improve patient care? Absolutely. Because we're, you know, we're developing the research and service evaluation. We're keeping people, it's all, you know, retention's important for some people. interested in their job. Somebody I mentor in Nottingham, who was an imaging assistant, then went on, did the apprenticeship, Qualified as a radiographer, went to Toronto last weekend for a first international conference that presenting on play therapy work. And that's something that, you know, everything for me saying, I'll help you find the money when you apply for a culture radiographer's overseas, but I'll get you there. You, just, you, you get accepted and we'll get you there. And that's so satisfying. So, somebody that I knew from an imaging system presenting internationally and winning the prize, you know, that's the best thing of the job. And that's just, it's great for it. Amazing. And, and obviously, hugely rewarding from the job satisfaction perspective because I would imagine just just you talking about the support that you offer, I know so many people who who get a hurdle and then they go, I can't do this, I haven't got the support or go to their manager but their manager maybe doesn't have the knowledge to support them in the right way. And you know being not bad resilient, we're quite resilient. We went to Dr. Ted yesterday, we're talking about the kids in the NIHR fellowship. The flashback to my NIHR interview with Leeds when they just absolutely trashed me. I like broke me and I thought I'll never get PhD funding. And then you just pick yourself back up yeah. and you find your money somewhere else and you keep going. So I'm very good at supporting people when they're sitting there going, Oh, I'm gonna have to give up, I'm doing what to do. It's just pick yourself up and get it on. And it isn't always about formalised PhD study, is it? You know, it's audits, service evaluations, you know, starting small and developing your confidence and, and also working together as a team, you know, you've highlighted perfectly yeah. the impact that can have. And I would say, you know, not everybody wants to be kind of academic, but everybody should be developing their career. So when I was a manager and people wanted to go to a conference, I go, 
don't feel empty-handed. Yeah. But the other poster, if you don't want to present, do a presentation with somebody else. Or never just turn up, bring something. Yeah. So really bring something. And you'll, even if you learn two things at a conference that you can live through, it's worthwhile. If you want something, make the effort. So did you want to plug? Where do people need to go? <laughs> yeah, well, have a look at us on Twitter. We um, really appreciate anybody stopping by to fill out our survey and stuff findings. And even if you don't have that service in your trust, we want to know what you think about and what we should be offering. So come and fill it out. That would be great. Perfect. Thank you very much.